Well, good morning. Welcome again. I'm really glad you're with us this morning. We started our fall series in the Old Testament book of Exodus last week. And I said last week that Exodus is chapter 2 of a five-chapter book known as the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible are known as the Pentateuch. And the intent of the author is that the five books be read as one story. Another way to put this is that the first five books of the Bible are five movies telling one story. Think Star Wars for you Star Wars fans. Exodus is the second movie of a five-movie series telling one story. All that to say is that there will be times in understanding Exodus that we'll need to revert back to Genesis or jump forward to Deuteronomy to understand it fully. But this week and over the next ten weeks, we will focus on Exodus. Exodus is the story of Israel's journey from slavery to salvation, Israel's story of deliverance and liberation. The New Testament teaches that the church today is on a journey from slavery to salvation, that we too have a story of deliverance and liberation, that we are led by one greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus. We are on a new exodus. Exodus is a great framework by which we are to understand the Christian life. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 2 of Exodus. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read God's Word. This is God's Word to us this morning. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw him that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with butamen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. 
For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would come now and speak to us. That you would, by your grace and by your mercy, illumine our minds and tender our hearts that we might hear your voice, that you might speak to us, that we would be changed, that uh, that is... Your spirit speaks to our spirits. We would leave this place different. I pray that you would make much of Jesus. Remove me, the preacher, so that Christ is exalted in this place, that you would lead us, I pray, in deliverance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my sophomore year of college, I interviewed for something called War Eagle Girls and Plainsmen. It was an exclusive group of men and women selected at Auburn University to be representatives to alumni, donors, and prospective students. And so I decided my sophomore year to interview. And I entered the interview fairly confident because I knew a lot of people in the current group, but I was also anxious because I had not experienced many, many interviews in my life up until this point. And the first question they tossed out to me was supposed to be a softball question. They get warmed up, get their interviews started in the right direction, but it froze me. They asked, Daniel, tell us about yourself. In other words, Daniel, how would you define yourself? And I started stumbling and babbling and saying all kinds of random, non-cohesive, inarticulate things. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm from Columbus, Georgia. I was born in Langdale, Alabama. I've got an older brother, seven years older than me. He's always been my hero. My mom and dad are from Alabama. My dad is in the military. I, I love sports. I play basketball and baseball and golf. I, I play a little bit of the guitar. I, I love Auburn football. Right? I grew up Catholic, but now I go to a Protestant church. I mean, I literally started just word vomiting random things talking, but while talking, I was searching for what I really believed defined me. Now, all of us have experiences where we try to give some picture of who we are, our identity, our definition. Maybe it's happened in the past couple of weeks here at church where uh, you've been meeting someone new. Either you're a first-time guest or, or a second-time guest, or you've been here and you're meeting someone for the first time. And you're trying to introduce yourself and you're, you're trying to decide what you want to tell them. Do you tell them where you're from, uh, where you went to school, what you do for a living? Maybe it's happened for you on the college campus in the past month where you're meeting all kind of new people. And do, you, do you tell them where you're from, what your major is, what your interests are? Perhaps you put a lot of thought into what you post on Facebook or Instagram. That you really want this image or this scene to tell people who you are and what you're about. We search for ways to define ourselves, right? Our birthplace, our family, our education, our work, our ethnicity, our social cause, our marital status. We joked at our staff meeting this past week about our very own tear-off tabs that you just 
filled out where we ask you to check the box if you're single, if you're married, you know, we it's really is our attempt to to try to understand who you are and uh, but we joked uh, this past week at staff meeting that there should be a box that says it's complicated or a box that just says just pray for me. <laughs> right? We we search for ways to define ourselves. So what defines you? Exodus 2 is about Moses' identity. And one thing to know is that Moses' identity is a preview or a pre-living. Moses' life is a pre-living of Israel's identity. They will experience the same things Moses experiences, which means that it can help us understand our identity or what should define us. So what I want to do this morning is look at Moses' identity. In chapter 2, we have three scenes, verse 1 to 10, verse 11 to 15, and verse 16 to 22. These three scenes from Moses' life that help us understand who he is, but more than that is that it gives us insight into the God of deliverance who delivers Moses, giving Moses his his identity. And this God of deliverance delivers us and he gives us our identity. First thing I want to point out this morning is that God's deliverance is by his sovereign working. And he often works behind the scenes. We see this in Moses' birth in verses 1 to 10. I really love this scene of Moses' birth. I don't know if you followed it as we read it. But a Levite man marries a Levite woman. At this point, we're not sure who they are. They're just two Levites. And the woman conceives and gives birth to a son. And you have to remember that this Pharaoh has issued an edict that all Hebrew male children should be thrown into the Nile and killed. This mother disobeys Pharaoh, knowing she could suffer. For three months, she hides her son, makes sure he's healthy, and when she can no longer hide him, she makes a basket. And the word for basket in Hebrew is the same Hebrew word for ark, used for Noah's ark in Genesis chapter 6. This is the first hint towards Moses' identity as the deliverer. Like the ark delivered Noah and his family through the destructive flood waters, so will Moses deliver Israel through the destructive waters of the Nile. And we'll see in the coming months through the destructive waters of the Red Sea. The mother places Moses in the basket and places him into the Nile. And Moses' sister stands at a distance. She's watching to see what's going to happen to her brother and the daughter of Pharaoh just happens to come down to take a bath and sees this baby stuck in the reeds. And this daughter of Pharaoh was not like her father. The apple fell far from the tree because she takes pity on the child. She has compassion on this baby. And the sister sees this happening and approaches Pharaoh's daughter. She says, shall I get a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, go. And where does she go? She goes back to her mother. She goes back to Moses' mother. And Pharaoh's daughter allows Moses' mother to nurse him. And Moses' mother would raise him till he was about three to four years old and then give him back to Pharaoh's daughter where he would be raised in the royal family. And Pharaoh's daughter would name him Moses, she says, because I drew him out of the water. The deliverer of Israel would be raised, provided for, protected, 
nurtured by the actions of three women. The Israelites would ultimately be delivered through this deliverer because of the faithful lives of these three women. And here's what I want to point out. Is that God was working everything out for the sake of His own purposes. Specifically, God was using the mundane acts of these women to provide deliverance. God brought two Levites together in marriage. A baby was born. A loving mother nursed him. A sister watched as her brother went down the river. The the daughter of Pharaoh was just taking a bath, but God had prepared her heart to have compassion. Pharaoh's daughter would allow Moses' mother to raise him for three to four years, and then Moses' mother would bring him back into the royal family as she would give him away. None of these seemingly mundane acts or what could appear meaningless acts are insignificant. God was weaving all these things together as a master tapestry to bring about the salvation of the Israelites. In theological terms, this is the doctrine of God's providence. In the sovereignty of God, He works all things out for the sake of His purposes in the world. And that means everything about your life and everything about my life. That God is at work in the mundane and the ordinary of our lives. It's hard to view life this way as you're living in the present. It's it's often easier to see and believe this when you look backward at your life. For in the midst of pain and struggle, when things feel random or disjointed, it's hard to make sense. But when you begin to look backward, you can begin to see how everything works together. That everything was working out to bring you to where you are now. Where you were born. The family you were raised by, the experiences you had as a child, where you have been and the things you have experienced, all the things that have felt mundane and ordinary, God was orchestrating and weaving together to bring you to where you are now. This is how God works. This is how God delivers. It's not always flashy and grand. God is a providential artist weaving together a master tapestry of our lives for his purposes. There's an older movie now with the title The Game. I don't know if you've seen this. How many of you have seen the movie The Game with Michael Douglas? It's an older movie, but it's one of my favorites. Michael Douglas in the movie is invited to play a game by his brother for his birthday. It was a birthday present. Michael Douglas doesn't want to play it, but he doesn't know he's already in the game. Suddenly, All kinds of strange and inexplicable and completely frustrating things start to happen to him. His life seems to be spiraling out of control and the movie looks like it's going to end with his suicide as he's about to jump off of a building, but he jumps off the building and then lands in the center of an X on a huge air pad. And as he gets up, realizing he is alive, he looks around and he sees everyone in his life. They're all there. Everyone who's been involved in his life, including those who have been against him recently, all standing, all celebrating and clapping for him and his new perspective that he now has on life. Listen, what if the events of your life 
have not been so much about you seeking answers and meaning, but more about God seeking you. Showing you just what you need to know at just the right time. It's beautiful. It's amazing when we can see the fingerprints of God in all of life. God's deliverance often comes as He works behind the scenes. His deliverance is by sovereign working. That's my second point. God's deliverance is upside down from the world. See this in verse 11 to 15. Moses' willingness to give up his privileged life and to take a stand for justice. Look at verse 11. It says, he went out to his people. Moses said, these are my people. These are his people. Moses identified with the Israelites. He felt solidarity with those being oppressed, and he looked on them. He saw their burdens. He saw them. The Hebrew word see is the same Hebrew word for see in chapter 2, verse 25, where God sees us. And I said this last week, is that that means that God sees us with emotion. He has compassion. He feels for us. So here it means that Moses saw his people with emotion. He felt for them. One day Moses sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Moses looks to his left, he looks to his right, he sees no one, and so he lashes out and he kills the Egyptian. Now most commentators will say that this is Moses around the age of 40 years old. Around the age of 40. So we don't know much of Moses' life from verse 10 when he's roughly 4 years old to verse 11 when he's roughly 40 years old. We can conjecture a good bit with some good biblical reason. So if you will, conjecture with me for a moment. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Which means for 40 years, Moses ate the best food. He experienced the best of Egyptian culture, probably received the best education in the empire. He was taught all that was required to be part of the royal family. In all senses, Moses was part of the elite and the privileged. But deep down, Moses knew he was a Hebrew. He knew his origin. He was an Israelite more than Egyptian. Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 25, lets us in on this. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses identifies himself in solidarity with the oppressed Israelites rather than the Egyptian royalty. And in his solidarity and his passion for justice, he kills the Egyptian. Now Moses isn't a perfect example here for us. He's not. Killing is wrong in all cases. It's why he hides the body and runs away. But Moses, in his identity as the deliverer, is right in his passion for the oppressed and in his defense of the suffering. He just goes about it in the wrong way. His method and his timing are all wrong. There would come a time, the Lord's time, when God would use Moses, and we'll begin to see this next week. But this is not the right time. This is not the right method. But look at what Moses is doing. 
Look at what he's doing in his solidarity with those who are oppressed and in his fight for justice. Moses surrenders his privilege. And he surrenders his power to fight for those oppressed. Moses knows in acting out for justice and in his identification with the Israelites, he's coughing up the past 40 years of privilege. Do you see how God's delivering here? He is working upside down from the world. The world apart from God, regardless of culture, always produces a people that seek after power and prestige and money. Every culture has always had a group that holds the power. There is always the privileged who receive the best from any culture. And Moses had it all. He was one of the privileged. But catch it, God delivers Israel as Moses gives up his prestige and power. God delivers not by might and by money, but by sacrifice and by solidarity with those oppressed. God's deliverance is upside down of the world. What does it mean for you to live upside down? Those of you with power, how can you give away your power? Those of you with resources and money, how can you give it away to fight for those who are marginalized and oppressed and suffering? How can you live in solidarity with your people, with those who are made in God's image? You can do this in large ways. You can do it in large ways. I mean, a lot of you do this. You can get involved in taking care of refugees who are moving in to Durham. You can do this as you fight for racial equity, whether it be in education or affordable housing or mass incarceration. You can do this by seeking to put an end to sex trafficking or by helping fight for unborn children and caring for pregnant women. You can do this also in small ways. And I hope you hear this, that you can do this and fight for justice and in the lives of individuals one-on-one over a cup of coffee or a, uh, over a lunch with a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker by speaking into a person's life and reminding them, reminding them of their God-given dignity, who they are created to be in God's image. And you can remind them of the deliverance that God gives us in Jesus. God's deliverance is upside down It's not by privilege and power and money. It's about solidarity with the oppressed because they're created in the image of God. It's about doing what we can do to bring about the liberation for all who suffer. Here's the last thing I'll say about God's deliverance. Is that God's deliverance is an exilic calling. Verse 16 to 22. It's an exilic calling. We see this in Midian in the name of Moses' son. Moses, afraid of Pharaoh, flees to Midian. He flees to the desert. And as soon as he arrives there, he encounters seven daughters of the priest who apparently have been enduring suffering at the hand of some shepherds for a, for a long time. Because uh, uh, the, the father is surprised when they show back up. The seven daughters show back up so soon. And, and Moses, it says, stands up to the shepherds. He saves the seven daughters and he serves them by watering their flock. Moses' passion for justice and his fight for the oppressed is still a part of his identity in Midian. It's 
So the daughters go home, they tell their father that an Egyptian saved them. Catch that? Catch what's going on here for Moses and his own identity? He's birthed by a Levite, nursed till four years old by her. Surely his mother taught him the Hebrew language. Surely told him, you'll always be a Hebrew. But he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter in the Egyptian royal family for 40 years, having the best the world could offer. Moses sees his people, the Israelites, being oppressed, and he stands up for them. He fights for them. He sees the daughters being oppressed, and he stands up for them. And then, ironically, the daughters call him an Egyptian. An Egyptian, after all he has given up, after surrendering his privilege, he's called an Egyptian. Can you see the tension he might be feeling? Who's my family? Is it, is it my birth mother or is it Pharaoh's daughter in the, in the royal family? He's wondering, is he, is he a Hebrew or is he an Egyptian? Moses is viewed as an Egyptian but has solidarity with the Hebrews. Chris Cooper said this past week as he and Timothy and I were looking at this passage together that Moses was the ultimate code switcher. If you don't know what code switching is, it's someone who can alternate between two or more languages or two or more cultures. It's what many of you who are here have learned how to do. And code switching has been used in the past number of years to describe what ethnic minorities have to do with majority culture in order to flourish. To go in and out of cultures, you have to code switch. Well, Moses can switch between the Israelite culture and the Egyptian culture. You can feel Moses' struggle and pain. He's wondering, who am I? Who am I? And then he names his child with Zipporah Gershom, meaning sojourner in a foreign land, a wanderer, a pilgrim without a home. Now Moses isn't just referring to being in Midian. He's talking about his whole life. Being an Israelite in Egypt, being born of a natural mother but raised by Pharaoh's daughter, a Hebrew but an Egyptian, Moses is a sojourner in a foreign land. And verse 23 to 25 sheds some light on Moses beginning to understand his identity. For here he's beginning to realize his identity is not primarily about his earthly family or his ethnicity. It's about being a child of God's covenant. Moses is realizing that this world is not his home. This world filled with oppression and pain and suffering and code switching is not his real home. He is a wanderer headed towards the promised land to be in a place with the God who sees him and knows him. Verse 25. This is who we are, church. Primarily, our identity is not tied to our biological family, though our biological family is important and God calls us to love our biological families. It's not tied to our ethnicity, though that is important. And God tells us to delight in our ethnic differences and that our ethnicity will be part of the new heavens and the new earth. Our identity is primarily tied to being a child of God's covenant, being part of the family of God with brothers and sisters, being part of this thing we call the church. And this world is not our home. Hebrews 11, this great passage on faith that I've already used to talk about Moses, also talks about Abraham 
who like Moses wandered towards the promised land. And listen to Hebrews 11 verse 9 talk about Abraham. It says, by, by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. We are sojourners, wanderers in this world. We're not despisers of this world called to engage this world, but we surely are pilgrims passing through, heading to our true home, heading to the city, the new Jerusalem, whose designer and architect is God. First Peter describes Christians as aliens, foreigners, strangers, exiles in this world. Well, Hebrews 3 tells us that Jesus is the greater Moses leading us in deliverance as we trust him and as we follow him. And so let me tie what I've been saying back to this great deliverer, Jesus, who gives us our true identity. Jesus was born under an edict of a tyrannical ruler, Herod. Herod declared that all male Hebrew children be killed, yet Jesus was born and placed in a manger, a lowly birth. We don't have much of Jesus' life from his birth to the time of, of him leading God's people to deliverance when he comes on around the age of 30 years old. We do know he was a carpenter. We know that he kind of went in and out of the synagogue. And we do know this, that the Father was preparing the Son through many ordinary and mundane experiences. And when the time was right, Jesus was drawn out of the water of John's baptism to lead God's people out of slavery slavery of sin and death, into the redemption that Jesus would accomplish. Jesus always saw the downtrodden and the marginalized. His first sermon, he quotes Isaiah. He says he came to set the captives free. He was the great liberator of the oppressed. He stood up for ethnic minorities like we see in the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. He stood up for women who were oppressed. We see this as he engaged the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus was passionate about justice. Yet he would not take matters into his own hands like fallen Moses. He would trust his father and know that what appears like weakness would be the way evil would be defeated. For Jesus would be led unto the cross and he would give up all power and all prestige and all privilege as the Son of God. And he would take the weight of sin upon himself. He identified himself with us so that he could deliver us from slavery of sin and death. And all who trust this deliverer, Jesus, are declared in him. In Christ, this is our identity, liberated from sin and death by and through Jesus. Which means... As we are in Him, our life should become more and more like His life as He works in us. And so let me give you three quick ways to live this out. Three quick ways for after you eat lunch and go home and forget this sermon or you wake up tomorrow morning to go to work or to take care of your children you've forgotten the sermon, here are three quick applications for you to, to think about and try to remember. The first Trust God. Trust God. He is at work behind the scenes. 
God is at work in the mundane and the ordinary of your life, in your job, in the changing of diapers, as you walk your neighborhood, as you say hello to the cashier at the grocery store. Trust that God is at work all the time, weaving together your life for His purposes. Second, God has called us to identify in solidarity with His people. We are God's children, and we are to fight for all who are experiencing injustice, to give people their dignity when their dignity has been robbed and taken from them, to remind them they are in God's image. And we are to remind people of the deliverance and liberation that comes in Christ. And we are to seek to set all who are in chains in any form free. And lastly, God calls us to live as aliens in a strange land. This world's not our home. We are on a journey, exiles, headed to our eternal destination with a God who delivers us day by day until one day we are delivered fully. And we'll know Him as He knows us. And we'll see Him as He sees us. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would allow what you have said to be planted deep within us, anything that I've said not of you, to be quickly forgotten. Pray that you would allow us to be captivated by who you are as you deliver us, that our identity and who we know to be true of who we are to be defined primarily about who we are in Christ. Thank you for your deliverance. Thank you that you are leading us on this journey of redemption, this journey of salvation. May it be great joy unto us today and every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.